Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... When you're having a startup, it's like you've kind of got to convince a whole bunch of people that you're about to run a marathon. And by the way, the marathon's uphill and none of these people have even gone for a jog before. Liar's Spirit Company and its broad range of non-alcoholic spirits and now even pre-mixed cocktails, according to Carl, is experiencing triple-digit growth at the moment. But as they continue to expand, Carl Hartman knows that as an entrepreneur, you have to master risk-taking by taking educated risks. In part two, he also reveals the pitfalls and opportunities they had to deal with at the hands of the COVID-19 pandemic. Hope you enjoy part two of my chat with Carl Hartman. Carl Hartman, welcome back to part two of our chat on Build It, Thou Come. Now, just before the COVID pandemic, I believe you were in London expanding liars into a number of countries all at once. So how did that go? And then what happened when COVID hit? Yeah, so I think COVID for us, the big uh, shift from a strategy wise was lockdowns, right? So mm. think think about this. We, we built a plan. Um, our plan had a very strong D2C component from day one. But then we had a very much a, um, a very traditional approach. Sorry, we, just D to C? Oh, direct to consumer. Yes. So, um, you know, the e-commerce part, we wanted it to be a very contemporary data-driven, uh, you know, brand because yep. uh, there's a bunch of, bunch of reasons. But um, I think building that uh, community and um, just particularly understanding some of the demographics that are more likely to purchase through a website than perhaps in a store. Um, um, so you think of right. Gen Z millennials, that's yep. the native way they do things. And we'll come back to that in a second. But I think, you know, we still anticipated that two thirds plus of our business would come from, uh, you know, retail and uh, what we call the in the industry, the on-trade. So bars and restaurants. Mm-hmm. Now imagine COVID happens and then at least 50% of your addressable market overnight yep. is shut. Yep. Right. That's what happened to us. And we're like, oh shit. Like, yeah. what do we do? Because it's like we've we've got people that are literally employed to go to bars and restaurants. I mean, yeah. that's their job. So sorry, and- I'm just gonna stop you there for a minute and I'm sorry to interrupt that lovely flow. But for the first what, hours, few days, few weeks, were you completely panic struck? No, I, I think it was just about, um, you, you know, it was just you get into the war room a little bit saying, okay, we've got, we've got mouth to feed. Like, mm. you know, we, 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 you know, when you start a company and people work for you, I mean, you treat them like family, right? Mm. And if you don't, you should. Um, so, and then there was a lot of, um, but just because concern was probably the right word, just with the general population, because like everyone was like, well, what's going to happen? Like, you know, how are we going to have enough revenue coming through to pay? So we probably took it a little bit differently. We were like, right, okay, we've got these assets. We could see some very quick policy movements in terms of things like JobKeeper and PPP loans in the US where yep. the government was supporting just to try and, you know, people you might have to lay off in that scenario, just keep them going. We were very lucky that two things. One, we had a strong direct-to-consumer part of the business that we could all lean into. So, you know, literally we got some of our employees that job was to go to bars and restaurants and we said, 
is a Zoom account. Uh, you're now a digital brand ambassador. And we did some cool things during the pandemic. Like someone bought one bottle. We gave them a masterclass. Um, one, we gave, uh, I don't know, something to do for everyone. Fantastic. We built this community and this brand, um, you know, because someone would come and buy one bottle and they're bored at lockdown. And they're like, hey, if you've got one of these, one of these, one of these, you could make all these other drinks. And right. they're like, let's do this. So, it, as I was saying before, um, one of these interesting trends that happened through lockdown is people for the first time had spare time in many cases. Um, this was me. I mean, like, when, particularly when they said you're only allowed to leave the house for um, grocery shopping or exercise. Yep. I'm like. Yes, I'm going to do a lot more exercise. And before you know, I'm training for a triathlon because it just escalated. <laughs> so these things happen. Um, but <laughs> what was happening is people were really present at home with their families looking for things to do. So people got into cooking, making cocktails. So that whole mixology thing we did, that, that, that was so good for education. And then people would tell their friends. We got this word of mouth and the thing went viral and that was fantastic. And we utilized like all our people. The other thing that we did is um, we, start, we, we, we had a whole sort of sequence of markets we were going to go to, going back to what I was talking about earlier about addressable market. Mm. But then the policy response was just all over the space. I mean, look at Australia. I mean, the policy response in Victoria was different to Queensland. Yep. The policy response in the US was pretty much state by state. Um, you know, we had a, a fairly big team already in China. Um, they're still going, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, with their lockdowns and, uh, and COVID policies. So we were like, we can't predict what's going to be open, what's going to be shut. Let's just go wide. Let's just sign distributors wherever we can. Get them to get products in um, we'll support it with direct to consumer and look because of that we found some absolute gems of markets um like ones that perhaps weren't on our priority list that have ended up becoming you know amazing like, like switzerland oh for really example. yeah i mean switzerland's you know on a per capita basis without a doubt our, our best performing market in europe um but you know kind of makes sense you've got you know out, outdoorsy affluent educated great humans like Sure. I mean, the, the brand's going to work there. Yeah. Um, one that surprised me was Ireland, actually, because I think everyone thinks about the Irish and has, uh, you know, a preconception. Um, turns out, like, they're a lot like Aussies and um, you give them the choice to drink less and they will do it again because they're educated and actually do like to be healthy. Gosh. Um, the Baltics, like Latvia. Um amazing market wow. um, was that high on our list on day one probably not yeah. but um did it surprise us sure did so there's a whole myriad of examples where we were kind of just going wide and then we were seeing sort of like these pockets of performance and go right let's just double down on that because there's you know something something special's happening yeah so there clearly also would have been i guess some pitfalls and i mean something like the sort of the whole supply chain and logistics oh, and getting freight around the world certainly by 2021 was that yeah. a headache for you you said supply chain. I might need to go make a like a, okay. an original original recipe drink, you know, because just to you know, don't mention the war. But um, yeah, the Suez Canal incident that was that was fun. Um, oh, really? You know, we had we had a whole bunch of uh, our whole European, uh, <laughs> you know, stock on a on a on a boat that was like one behind it, and we're like uh, delayed for weeks. And then then what happened as an Australian exporter? Um, all the capacity to the US got taken out because people would book it because you couldn't get stuff to Europe because that canal was blocked. So they were just booking all the very limited oh. boats going to the US and then we couldn't resupply the US. And it's just like, 
chaos, right? And you know, air freight went up from being a couple of bucks a kilo for some lanes before uh, COVID to twenty thirty during, and mm. you know, even now there might only be six or seven. So yeah, that was hard. And then there was like shortages of cardboard and you know glass and aluminium and all sorts of things. How so, long did all that last for? And oh, when are you cases. talking? Yeah, some cases it's still going. Oh, I mean, right. there's, well, there's inflationary impacts on some of these things. But yeah, yeah look, um, yeah, it, it wasn't without its challenges, absolutely, particularly doing it at a global scale. But um, I, I think we just got on, um, made quick decisions, pivoted where we had to, um, you know, I think just double down on areas that were working. Um, it certainly accelerated our plants to sort of syndicate the business and, um, you know, produce what within does that market. Mean? So we now- Oh, so we um so we manufacture in Australia, but also um, the US and Europe. Um, we we're, we're going to do the same with the US, but at the moment, with the US dollar being where it is, Aussie dollar being where it is, it um, makes more sense to export for the foreseeable yeah, future. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, okay. And just back to that idea that you started talking about, and I think I stopped you. That you know, just before the pandemic, you'd been told you know to go slowly, try one market, then build up another market, and all that. You went against the grain in that sense, yeah, didn't you? Yeah, everyone thought Tell we were us. crazy, but um, now they're like, oh, maybe that, that was the right play. I'm like, yeah, I think it was. <laughs> so what was the play? Uh, look, I think it was, uh, it was what we did or what we, were, what we were going to do. Well, just what you did, but so many people said to you, oh, yeah, don't so, do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so basically um, – yeah, everyone told us just do one at a time, own the market, and then move on to the next. And again, because we couldn't predict the policy response, we would just sell anywhere that would that would take it. Um, for us, I mean, it allowed us uh, to sort of we we traded through COVID, right? Because sure, sometimes that we'd have a market for you know a complete lockdown, it goes mm. to a stall, but uh, you know because there's a wave there. But somewhere else, it's like you know, even using the Australian example, Queensland was open for business, and Victoria couldn't go, you know. Yeah, if you're in Melbourne, you couldn't go more than five k's of your yeah, house. So there was yeah. this dichotomy. So we were just sort of like, you know, just punching through it. Um, so if we didn't do that, I think we would have died. I, I just don't think we would have had enough revenue coming through to support the operations. But we just rode the wave. But the best part was we got through COVID and we're in so many countries. So, but now we're at a point where we get global RFPs from major hotel chains and airlines. And you know, without sounding arrogant, we're the only uh, supplier that can actually meet the procurement requirements, right? Because if they're saying, hey, we want to put you into 100 countries and here's our supply chain hubs and you need compliant product. And this is the tricky um, thing about our product is because we don't contain ethanol, we're regulated like a food, which means we have liquid and label compliance uh, for every country we're in. Mm -hmm. And that differs a lot uh, in terms of standards, labeling. Um, in some cases, it requires reformulation. Gosh. Um, so, but we can now sell our product compliantly in 100 countries. So, it, we've got a massive competitive moat and competitive advantage uh, that's uh, allowing us to become this dominant global brand now because um, we've got this pull through that's just happened organically, particularly on the back of um, COVID where, you know, travel retail's coming back, um, you know, people are healthier. I mean, we're served on cruise ships, um, for example, and, you know, you think of cruise ships being all inclusive. Mm. Well, people aren't all inclusive. They don't necessarily want to drink. Right? Yeah. Because they're like, you know, they're doing um, wellness classes and yoga and stuff. And um, Disney, um, Disney, uh, in terms of the parks in the US, is one of our um, our best accounts, right? Oh, and, really? Yeah, That's I mean, people great. people can have a you know a non-alcoholic margarita while they're with their kids. Um, 
maybe pretending it was a real one, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they probably need a real one after yeah. the day at Disney with the kids. So, yeah. I mean, you've scaled up businesses, and I know you've talked about this before, but, I mean, what are the big pitfalls to avoid when scaling up? Uh, manage your cash line. Um, as in cash is everything, particularly yeah. in the current climate. So, Meaning just, make sure you've got some. Yeah, make, <laughs> make sure you've got some. Um, but yeah, I think just be mindful um, of, you know, it's okay to burn, but like you have to have, uh, I guess, make sure your unit economics are solid and uh, you've got a path to profitability, whether that's, uh, you know, a one-year, three-year, or five-year horizon, mm. probably depending on your, your macros and your investors and what their expectations are. Um, in current climate, I think there's a – an absolute expectation um, that if you're not profitable, you're profitable as quickly as possible. And if you are profitable, you know, your 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 EBIT and your profitability is sort of in line with market expectations. Um, I think um, the sort of the days of going, here's free money, burn it and don't worry about profitability. I mean, mm. they're gone, right? Yeah. So, um, so cash is everything. Uh, people, like I can't stress the importance of if you want to build a, whether it's a successful local business or global business, um, you need the best humans you can possibly find. Which to rally is hard around at you. the moment, right? Because there's, there's a shortage of, of all sorts of workers, yep. let alone great workers. Indeed, yeah. And then, like, um, one of the analogies I love to give is, um, you know, <laughs> when you're having a startup, it, it's like you've kind of got to convince a whole bunch of people that you're about to run a marathon. And by the way, the marathon's uphill, and none of these people have even gone for a jog before. So, <laughs> Um, yeah, so it's, uh, you know, everyone's, I think, is built for different stages along that journey. Um, so sometimes there's some amazing people that are the right people you want on day one that, you know, it might naturally tap out sort of three, four, five years into it. And there's some people that I think um, they're the people you probably want to join the team when you're 100 people or 200 people because they bring a different operating skill set. And, um, you know, um, there's a good book that's worth reading, uh, you know, Ben Horowitz, Horowitz's book, uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, talks mm -hmm. about the peacetime and the wartime. Mm -hmm. Like, I think often a lot of startup founders are really good at wartime because, you know, it's all we, well, all we know is the chaos. Uh, sometimes there's actually a, a different skill set. Once it does get to maturity and you start to, like, you know, uh, maximize for profitability over growth, um, you know, often that's a different operator, right, that might be tapped in at that time. There are other zero alcohol spirit brands on the market. There are other Australian ones and the global liquor giants that we talked about with beer, but with, you know, Diageo, Piano Ricard, William Grant, they're all pushing hard into non-alcoholic spirits. Sure. Could they hurt you or crush you or why do you think people will still go for liars? our liquids are the best. Um, <laughs> I think- uh, No contest, just, huh? Just go try them. I mean, we've got more than 300 awards. Um, some of our competitors might have a couple. Um, but, you know, look, taste taste be the judge, right? Um, I think, um, look, the more things that enter the category, the better it is for the category. Um, we are very well positioned, I think, in premium volume. Um, there's markets where some of the global liquor giants have launched their products and we still hold, you know, 40 to 60% market share um, with very little marketing dollars wow. versus others. So, um, and then there's a lot of markets where we're basically 100% market share because there is no one else because um, they're difficult You mean geographic end. markets? Geographics, yeah. So, like Middle East, for example, um, you know, we have a compliant product um, that meets, um, you know, the, the standards and uh, there's some countries where we just don't see the presence of anyone because it's so difficult to get down to the 
the levels that will be um, allowed, um, you know, under under the Muslim food laws. Okay, right? meaning um, the the low levels of al- yeah, alcohol. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we uh, we our, our product you, in the Middle East. But you think it'd be a no brainer, Carl? Somebody but it's so hard, right? So right. you have to get down to like zero point zero five, right? So you're talking. Uh, we have to have less alcohol that, that that is found in trace elements and juice or bread. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like it's yeah. low. Um, China's a similar market, you know, um, with, with complexity, as is Japan, which we go into next year so um so i think look there are uh folks that will do some some products that are great that may have some sort of uh traction in a local market but may struggle to ever go global Uh, i think that um you know some of the the multinationals might launch some of the brands in zero zero, but again, they're narrow casting. They're focused on um, you know perhaps one spirit. Um, if you want to really change how the world drinks, well, then you need a back bar, and that's probably another another point where there's other products right where the ratios are different, right? So they might have a, a reasonable product, but you might need to use fifty mil where the original recipe is thirty. What has been very very important for liars in reaching this sort of global uh, adoption uh, and a very quick adoption with bartenders is our products uh, are basically the only one that's nailed the one for one. So if you know how to make a Negroni and it's 30 mils, 30 mils, 30 mils, all you need to do to make that into a different format is reach for a different bottle. So the training and adoption for bartenders, be that professional or at home, is really simple. Uh, right. And they can mix and match. Um, and that's not something that happened with the early spirits because it's like people will look at it and go, okay, this is an interesting flavor. How the hell do I use it? Yeah. Right? And then some of the other ones that have done the mimicry play, uh, it's just all over the place. Like it might be, oh, you need 45 of that and 50 of this and, you know, because it's inconsistent. So that's something where we, we took a lot of time to get right, but it's been something that's been very important because if you go to a bar right now, it is so short-staffed. Mm. Like they're all struggling. It goes back to what we are talking about before, struggling for talent. If every time that there's a new product, they have to go, how the hell do I use mm. this? How do I-? And they have to spend a month to get the ratios and signature serves right. It was never like the, your product's going to die. Yeah, no, exactly. Whereas it's like liars. They go, cool. I'll just use this bottle instead of that bottle. Like it's it's that simple. Carl, your co-founder moved to Amsterdam, as I understand he's living there, to expand your business internationally. How much more international expansion and growth are you counting on? And what's the sort of percentage breakdown of where global sales are? Is is Australia? Yeah, yeah. Where's well, Australia? Australia, Australia over-indexes uh, for what it is. Um, you know, just, again, home, home ground advantage. But look, uh, look, North America, like US now is our, our largest market, uh, or North America. Um, Europe, well, it depends wow. if you look at Western so what, Europe. More than 50% or more than 30%? Oh, no, about a third. Um, of your yeah, revenue? Yeah. Europe, um, you know, Europe is, uh, well, if you look at Western Europe as a bucket, I guess, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that's sort of similar. APAC, similar. One that I think is, um, we're very bullish on is the Middle East. I would not be surprised if the Middle East ends up being a third of our revenue long, longer term. Oh, um, gosh. Just the growth's crazy. Um, and um, yeah, just, <laughs> we just need to make more. <laughs> We've built a brand um, that I think is a strong brand that uh, resonates well with consumers. And mm. we put this sort of unrelentless focus on the quality of our liquids. Um, you know, could we compromise, um, you know, a flavor and perhaps, you know, do more like lower cost? Sure. But I think we've just nailed that sort of balance in terms of um, 
you know, we, we've made it a sort of something that's accessible in terms of price point. Um, but, um, you know, it's as, as going back to what I was saying, we wanted to make sure it was as close to the real thing as was possible with science. Mm. What's your path to profitability? I uh, like imminent, so <laughs> time. <laughs> right. So not so, yet, but. Yeah. Oh but, look, we've been. I mean, we uh, the focus. But you've only been going what three yeah, years? Three years. Yeah. No, um, definitely, definitely in twenty three. Um, you know, um, our look, our, our focus for the last few years has just been scale. Um, but now we're sort of in that sort of next next phase of business. So I think, um, look, all venture back businesses, um, um, particularly at sort of our sort of stage. I mean, it's, if they're not doing it, it's irresponsible, right? Like it's the current environment it's i mean with funnily enough we were going to do this anyway so um i think <laughs> you know not, not much has changed for us from our, our plan but um but yeah certainly our, our focus is just building a great business um one that has strong union economics and um you know can last the test of time yeah so liars is obviously you know the main game for you now but you also have another business which you started before that which is compono can you just briefly tell us what's the the thing about compono that you've loved building yeah um well look i've been come up about three or four times on this chat today uh obviously the biggest challenge anyone anywhere is having right now is people yeah um, and you know in a few sentences that's what compono does so compono is a platform with, uh, where we basically integrate with around 1300 job boards across 100 countries um so it gives us a, a very unrivaled uh, reach into sourcing talent and then on top of that we have an engine that does skill qualification and culture fit matching so let's say you put a job ad locally you get 10 people then you wide cast that to i don't know pick 20 countries that might have those sort of roles be that you're prepared to employ them in those countries or uh, look to import them on a sponsored visa, mm -hmm. depending on what your operating model is, you might go from getting you know, 10 candidates to 100 or 300. And you obviously physically can't go through all those resumes and you shouldn't because there's better things you can do with your time. So the system will automatically do that based on best practice templates or criteria that you've set, um, including looking for all the things that aren't on a CV. So soft skills. Mm. Uh, so understanding how someone fits uh, the culture of a business, how someone fits um, the overall um, uh, role, and then how someone's personality um, impacts that role. So, so are, you still, are you still heavily involved in I'm running? I'm chairman of that Yeah, business. you're chairman so, of that. Yeah, so you so don't I, give I don't, it as much time today. as uh, you no, did. Look, I'd, I'd say uh, yeah, at the start, um, yeah, just you know, building it from scratch. Um, yeah, my, my co-founder Rudy there is, um, you know, more in the in the day to day thick of it. Um, but yeah, look, to be honest, it's something we it's a platform we use at Liars and has definitely been part of our secret sauce. Like every time we've got a role, um, we think globally. We 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 say, all right, if we need, I don't know, an e-com role or a finance role, it's like because we're one hundred percent remote working. It's like we just want to find the best person wherever they are and. Consequently, we've got people like I'm based out of Noosa. We've got people on the south coast of Sydney. We've got people in, you know, in regional Europe and, you know, all parts of the US and, you know, China. Amazing. Sprinkle through Asia. And it's just like, we actually don't care. We, we just want the right person and the ability to, for them to work uh, remotely, come together and collaborate when necessary. And I think that approach to talent has allowed us to look, find the best people in the world. Um, and it, it does take a bit of a step change because, I think if you look at some of the traditional businesses, particularly back in uh, the consumer space, it's almost like we must have a central hub of talent. Yeah. Everyone must be located there. And I think one thing if you can do, diversity of thought is really important. 
So there's diversity in hiring, which you absolutely should be doing. Um, but beyond um, the, I guess, the tick the box type exercises, and this is something obviously the Compono platform um, actually even highlights is the more you can actually bring together teams where people have different experiences and backgrounds, the, the decisions and the outputs you can create are just fundamentally improved. Um, and that's because if I have a whole bunch of life experience and backgrounds and a way of working and, and you have a whole um, you know, bunch of experience and ways of working and we contrast those, there'll be some things we're going to violently mm. agree and there's going to be some <laughs> things we violently disagree. And, and sometimes that conversation is what gets you to the right middle ground that is the best thing for the business because, you know, those experience is the most valuable teacher and you don't know what you don't know, right? Mm, I think you probably just answered this, but what is your secret sauce? I'd say in all my businesses, it's, it's the people. Like, I, I can't stress that enough. But if, if, if you, you know, if, if you hire sort of, uh, I guess, the right life stage, right level of experience, you, you remunerate well, um, you know, even just stop and tell people they're doing a good job and they're valued. Like, you'd be surprised mm. um, how many companies don't do a good job of that. Yeah. Carl, in liars say, have you ever come close to falling over or going broke? No, look, I think we just, um, you know, we're, 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 we're a gr- bunch of, we're a company that's run by, by adults, right? Like, and this is not our first rodeo. Um, I mean, I'd say businesses always have their challenges and ups and downs, mm. but um, look, we, we've got um, good investors, we've got, um, you know, a supportive board and, um, you know, and a great team. So, you know, uh, I think anyone that got through COVID unscathed, <laughs> you know, maybe a couple of scratch knees, yeah. um, you know, you, you certainly build a lot of resilience on the way through. And so in that sense, how do you feel you've mastered risk-taking? Because isn't that critical in a startup? You've got to sort of take risks, but you've got to master it as well. Yeah. So risk, I think, is it just goes hand in hand with entrepreneurship. Um, but at the end of the day, it's about educated risks. I think it's about like you just need to understand all the data points and you just need to make the best decision you can based on the facts that are before you. Now, is that data always going to be right? No. Uh, is every decision going to be the correct one? No. I mean, you have to test and learn. I mean, um, any any founder or entrepreneur that says they made every right decision is lying. Like, it's just not true. Like, you will make mistakes. Um, the, the art is not making the same mistake twice. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be good if you could d- yeah. avoid that. No, 100%. <laughs> um, so, what would you say are your markers of success right now for Liars Spirits? And I'm hoping you can either tell us a bit about sales or revenue or number of employees yeah. or number of markets, venues. Yeah, look, uh, I think all of the above. Um, look, one of the first things we start with is brand advocacy. So um, we uh, every year we're running sort of uh, brand surveys, uh, looking to just see of our customers, um, you know, who is an absolute advocate. And um, we've it's been amazing, actually. We've got really high advocacy. We're sort of talking like Dyson Nespresso levels. Uh, so the people that love our product, love our product, tell everyone about the product. And you know, if you want to see something interesting, you can look on social um, where someone has a comment and sometimes someone attacks non-alk as in, I don't understand the, you know, the, the point of this product. And sometimes they use more colorful expressions that <laughs> I won't get into on, on something that's recorded, but you can see for yourself. But you're just seeing natural people in our community saying, hey, I'm pregnant. I can't drink. So this is amazing. And um, there was a satire paper the other day that said, you know, it's sort of you know, comparing it to cordial. 
And then, you know, someone's saying, well, find me a cordial that tastes like gin because there's not, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like potato, yeah. potato, like yeah. we're talking about two very different things. Um, so, look, I think to create a brand that people love that just feel compelled to protect, um, that's a rare thing. Like it, it doesn't happen very easily. Uh, so, I, I think that's been something which is something we, 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 we kind of keep an eye on uh, in, in terms of both, um, you know, this the consumer surveys, but we also look at sediment as well. So, you know, when people talk about our brand, are they talking about it positively, negatively? And we've got, you know, a very high level of advocacy and we have very high levels of sediment, which is exactly what we we had hoped to achieve with the product. Yeah. And in terms of success in revenue or number of employees or markets you're in now, number of venues? Yeah. So, look, I think our our first phase was about getting quite wide. So, um, yeah, look, I think we've got sort of line of sight to sort of 100-odd markets. Uh, As of today, 70-something. We have a new distributor in the the Caribbean that's rolling out quite a few markets there. But uh, I think for context, some of those countries have the population of like Potts Point, but yeah. um, <laughs> a flag's a flag. Um, but um, yeah, so, I, I, and then um, the other thing I think we've been focused on is, is growth. Like, um, you know, uh, the, our target is just triple digit growth for as long as we can sustain it. <laughs> wow. And you're still yeah. getting triple digit growth. Yeah. So um, obviously we, the, the numbers are getting bigger. So, <laughs> you know, if it goes into high double digits, that's okay. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. Were your family in business, were they entrepreneurial? Yeah. Did this come from both, somewhere? Both my mum and dad. I don't think either were were capable of being employed. Um, so yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'm sure you say that path. kindly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah no, just always doing their own businesses, and you know, onto onto the next. So yeah, I definitely come from an entrepreneurial, uh, you know, family. So so I, it was I think talked that, about around the dinner table all the time. Yeah, yeah, and look, I think when you grow up with that, and um, you, you know, we can get probably another podcast on nature versus nurture, but certainly, I think. You know, if you grow up in a in a safe environment in a country like Australia, where you know uh, we we do get a good education, I think that's important. Like we we learn baseline. You know, whether you sort of a pro or against sort of tertiary education here, I, I think it does give you a, a good grounding in terms of um, you know just general skills, right? Um, and um, like my advice to people is always, if you actually want to have a big company one day, go work for one first. Uh, so Mark went and worked for Coca-Cola. <laughs> you know, I worked for, uh, for News Corp and then Fairfax, uh, early days of digital. I, I oh, learned ton, right. tons from those businesses, right? Um, so, um, you know, because you, you learn a lot of things from a big company like process and governance and, and uh, you, you don't necessarily learn that um, internally in a, a by yourself, the in same a startup, way, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think um, you know that's that comes handy as you get bigger too, because you kind of remember and go, oh, yeah, I remember rolling out Salesforce, and that was a hoot. <laughs> oh, so do you reckon your leadership style has changed? And what did you learn about yourself as a leader, say in those first few years of setting up and running, and now growing liars? Yeah, look, I mean, um, I think. Look, every entrepreneur has a different style. Um, I'd probably say, you know, mine's very collaborative, engaging, empowering. Um, like for me, it's just about trying to, I guess, create, I guess, recruit and um, just have a have a really, really amazing team that you can empower to do the best work of their careers, right? Because um, I think one of the mistakes you often make as an entrepreneur 
early on is you try and do everything yourself. You yeah. wear, like, particularly if on day one, you, you know, you're, you're the CFO, the CMO, the chief salesperson, yeah. like, you know, yeah. you're everything. And like, no one is good at everything, right? Um, I mean, this is my third company. I know exactly what I'm really good at now. Like, it's just, if I can d- double down on the things I have strength in and, you know, for things where I'm not as strong, I'm, I don't want to say necessarily weakness, but like, you know, am I good with numbers? Sure. Um, would I prefer I have a CFO that can yeah, a super you know, accountant, spend an yeah. entire day in Excel? I mean, I don't mind building the first commercial model, um, but do I want to be in an Excel every day when I could be out sort of doing deals, which are probably more value accretive for the business? Like, it's just about understanding you have such limited bandwidths um, and uh, you have to just, I think, think about the concept of ROE turn on effort, right? Mm. So if you're going to spend a day on something, what delivers the most value to your shareholders? Um, you know, is it is it raising capital? Is it winning major accounts? Is it on big strategic commercial deals that, you know, you need a broad knowledge of the business to, to get them across the line? Is it, perhaps it is getting really deep on your financials and optimizing cost. I mean, it might be different things at different times, but it's just understanding where you put your time. And I've seen sometimes that's the difference between, uh, successful entrepreneurs and unsuccessful entrepreneurs is often they spend time doing things they shouldn't do. And Mm. certainly when I've mentored ones or I've invested uh, in early stage stuff, it's just like, that's one of the first lessons, like just do more of this and less of that and you'll be okay. Yeah. (laughs) And learn how to delegate. Yeah. And and find out not good at. And delegate, right? Like um, certainly um, some of the people that uh, I've hired and sort of mentored and and developed uh, that delegation, particularly if it's your first big corporate role, like, you know, because you kind of get all this control and power and you're like, oh, you want, and then you kind of have to then go from being a one person army to getting off the tools and empowering teams. Yeah. That that transition is actually not that easy for a lot of people. So um, you, you learn it over time as an experience thing, but it is tricky. Oh, look, a lot of great insights. Just a couple of questions, quick questions that only need quick answers. I'm asking all my guests this. What are you obsessed about at the moment? Be it a cause, a book, a film? Uh, obsessed. Uh, look, if, if my team would, would tell, call me a liar if I didn't say the word kite surfing. So, uh, ah, yeah, yes. Pretty much live for the wind. You've, you've <laughs> fallen in love with that and that's your... Your yeah, I got, I got, I got particularly over, beautiful over COVID. obsession. Yeah, it's one of the one of the one of the uh, the lockdown lottery elements of living in Noosa. It's just like the wind blew. I said, yeah, and um, yeah, it's just it's become my passion. <laughs> wow, so, that's great. Yeah. What's the toughest thing you have faced in your business journey? Um, look, I'd just say like the last couple of years, uh, I'll just say the word uncertainty, right? Mm. Like it's just been, we've had a playbook about how to how to execute and scale and all the rules have changed recently. So um, yeah, that's just been tough because it's a, it's a different mindset, right? So I'd say that, that we've gone from an environment of capital abundance to capital scarcity and it just takes a different mindset in terms of how you allocate resources and capital. Carl, what's the biggest lesson you think you've learned along your journey as an entrepreneur? Uh, don't try to fight the battle on too many fronts. As in, business is hard, you can't be everywhere. Um, so, yeah, you, you just need to understand where you have to double down and have your must-win bites. Uh, and uh, there'll be other ones where you, it just makes sense to, look, just concede it, just move on, right? And uh sort of don't get into a, a trench war and and i don't necessarily mean this about sort of go to market this can this can just be even internal conversations like you know just building consensus i mean there's some things where like okay this is not up for discussion we have to do this versus 
right uh, okay well let's let's actually just unpack this and see where we get to yeah and what would you say to others who might want to pursue an idea or a dream of their own just do it <laughs> like don't talk about it all day just uh, you know you have a big vision dare to dream have a crack like um you know you got nothing to lose Carl Hartman, the co-founder of Liars Spirit Company. I'm so thrilled to have had you on the program. Thank you so much for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. Thanks for having me, Helen. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.